Hi, my name is Evan, and I use he, him pronouns. And my name is Ian, and I use they, them pronouns. And we are... The Baker Baker Street Street Regulars, Regulars. a podcast where we are taking a queer magnifying glass to the Sherlock Holmes canon and its many adaptations. Hi, Sarah. Welcome back. Thanks for having me back. (laughs) Can you give your bio again and tell us a bit more about your uh, first experiences with Sherlock Holmes? Yes. So my name is Sarah Golub. You can find me on Twitter or Blue Sky at Sarah Golub, where I am usually tweeting about Sherlock Holmes. I read the first half of the canon in high school, early college, and, you know, there's a lot of it. So when I say first half, I mean a lot of stories. And I really liked it. Years later, I helped H. Bomber guy make the Sherlock is Garbage and Here's Why video. And... I watched season one and parts of season two of Sherlock and had some very strong reactions to it. <laughs> kind of my my entryway into Sherlock Holmes was House MD because it was like loosely based on that. And that got me really excited about the Robert Downey Jr. movies. And I watched those and I read the stories and I loved House and it all kind of blows together in sort of a chicken egg situation. But basically what it comes down to is whenever... Holmes and Watson are in a situation it lights up my brain like when I was a teenager and mm-hmm. I'm like hey it's them they're getting up to nonsense and they're causing problems uh, <laughs> and then yeah so I I loved elementary the CBS show and then after that ended I was like what am I going to do every week because that came out once a week for seven years I should reread the canon and I did that and then the pandemic hit and then I was like well I got to do something to stay sane. So I reread the canon again and made Sherlock Holmes my whole personality. And that brings us here to 2023. Which makes you a perfect podcast guest. (laughs) Yes. What are are your favorite of the stories? That is a great question. I feel like I do have a list somewhere. Usually I like the stories that are kind of focused on Holmes and Watson as characters. So Three Garadebs is great for that. Norwood Builder has some... Just a truly bonkers opening. And is these are also fun cases. Ooh, one of my favorites is Thorbridge, which has a really fun twist, in my opinion. And, you know, a murderer that I'm like, nah, they're right. I'll give him that one. <laughs> <laughs> I like the ones where Holmes lets the criminal go, like Devil's Foot or Abby Grange or even Blue Carbuncle. Spoilers for all those stories. Holmes just lets him go. It's great. He's like, <laughs> I'm not a cop. I don't care. Love that. He gets to do whatever he wants because he's a freelancer. I love that about him. <laughs> Scandal in Bohemia is, of course, a classic that I think gets a bad rep because people are like, oh, it's the uh, it's the love story one. And it's not. That's not what it's about. It's about Sherlock Holmes being wrong and learning a lesson because he's wrong. And it's actually not a story about him falling in love at all. <laughs> I like most of them, honestly. There are a few duds, but... Why well, call those out? You know, there's 60 of them. Hound of the Basketballs, you got to read Hound of the Basketballs in October. Nice little gothic tale. Mm-hmm. Well, you yeah. talked about some some adaptations that you love. We're talking about an adaptation today that is, well, I think you called it a pastiche, which maybe is, is more appropriate. Are there other like continuations by other authors or literary adaptations that you're uh, a fan of as well? 
Oh, yes. So if you are a fan of reading the Sherlock Holmes stories, I highly, highly recommend reading Lindsay Fay's books. She has three books, Observation by Gaslight, which is interesting because it's stories in the world of Sherlock Holmes. And each chapter is a different story from a supporting character or a person that Holmes and Watson knows. So like Irene Adler has one, Lestrade has one, Mrs. Hudson has one. And they're like little mystery cases that are from the perspective of someone outside of Holmes and Watson, which is really fun. There's the whole art of detection, which is just uh, magic. It's very, very similar to the Sherlock Holmes stories because they are short stories written from Holmes or Watson's perspectives that are based off of cases that are alluded to in the canon that are not written up by Arthur Conan Doyle. And that's a very popular thing in pastiche. Doyle was always mentioning cases that, you know, happened, oh, just off screen last week. And it's very popular in pastiches to, you know, take that line and be like, this is my version of what that case would have been. But I think that Lindsay Faye's whole lot of detection are some of the stronger ones of those that I've read. And then also I really, really recommend Dust and Shadow, which is Sherlock Holmes versus Jack the Ripper by her. There are so many pastiches and adaptations and just additional media where Sherlock Holmes gets involved in the Jack the Ripper case because Jack the Ripper was active when Sherlock Holmes was active. And I think that hers feels the strongest and honestly, the least silly because I've definitely, it it spoiled me for other ones. Like I, I watched Murder by Decree and I kept being like, these dates are a mess. These are not when these de- murders occurred, <laughs> which is not a thing that you should be thinking about during a movie. I own Lindsay Fay's whole art of detection. I read it. I, th- I think they're terrific. They feel so in character to Arthur Conan Doyle's writing style. So we probably should cover one of those for the pod. We're also going to talk about Murder Right Decree as our Halloween special. So nice. well, we haven't seen it yet, but we're looking. I mean, for- the performances are great. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. I, I don't want to put anyone off of it. Not as historically accurate as <laughs> it could be. We'll keep that in mind. That I mean, honestly, funny. I'm I'm just inseparable because I'm like, we said it's October, but that murder happened in November, which is like not a thing <laughs> you're supposed to even be thinking about watching a yeah. movie. That's that's a me thing. <laughs> uh, last episode, we talked about the Redheaded League, part of the action of which takes place on Fleet Street. Have there been people who have knitted together Sweeney Todd and Sherlock Holmes? Oh, I bet they have. Here's the thing about Sherlock Holmes when you get into the world of pastiche and adaptation. Everything's been done. Every single crossover you can imagine has happened. It's all out there. You can tie Sherlock Holmes to anything. It's the blueprint of modern media. I'm like constantly shocked at stuff I learn Arthur Conan Doyle and Sherlock Holmes influence. Like, the first TV pilot ever filmed was a Sherlock Holmes adaptation. Uh, Arthur Conan Doyle popularized the concept of serialized procedural stories. Mm-hmm. Like the fact that when you read the Sherlock Holmes stories, you're like, these kind of feel like procedural television, but they're, it's it's a little off. It's like, because it's the first one. It's the yeah. first one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And other pe- probably, likely other people were making, you know, episodic stories before but other Conan Doyle like said himself like 
Well, you know, usually you write a book in a bunch of chapters that's published in, you know, published in magazines. And I thought like, well, that's so, you know, if somebody misses a chapter, they're just going to stop reading or it's confusing. So I was like, what if I just did that? But it was the same characters, but it was a completely new story every time. And whether he was the first or not, he's definitely the most successful and the one who made that a thing. Like we all TV owes a huge debt to Arthur Conan Doyle not wanting to write full-length novels. <laughs> Gotta respect the hell out of that. Yes. So, that, to answer your question, not only there's gotta be a Sweeney Todd thing, but there's also gotta be, like, some sort of published My Little Pony connection. There's gotta be, like, Sherlock Holmes meets Santa Claus. There's anything you can think of. It, I bet it's out there. It is... It is so seeped into every part of culture. <laughs> well, well, that leads nicely into what we're talking about today, which is Neil Gaiman's short story, A Study in Emerald. You have the fast facts. Tell us what this is a crossover with. Alrighty, so A Study in Emerald. It's a short story by British fantasy and graphic novel Arthur Neil Gaiman. This is a Sherlock Holmes pastiche transferred to the Cthulhu mythos universe of horror writer H.P. Lovecraft. So gaming kind of describes it as Lovecraft Holmes fan fiction. It was first published in Shadows Over Baker Street in 2003. And in 2004, it won the Hugo Award for Best Short Story. And obviously the title A Study in Emerald is a reference to A Study in Scarlet. Terrific. So you have this book, which is all Lovecraft Holmes pastiches what are the rest of them like okay so i bought this for the podcast but <laughs> i have also been reading on audiobook the improbable adventures of sherlock holmes which also has this in it which as one of the last ones which is funny to me because it's the intro to this one but it is because like even within the very niche genre of like lovecraftian supernatural horror Sherlock Holmes stories it is like either the opener or the closer right it is the headline piece a study in Emerald so yes spoiler alert there's a big twist in it that I definitely think you know if you haven't read it you should pause this episode and read it it's a short story you'll find the time it's available online but like the twist is something that I haven't seen in other things uh Sherlock Holmes wise uh they do usually play it more safe with the narrator and the perspective. Honestly, I think pastiches are a little too into following Sherlock Holmes. You know, they stay a little too close to him in a way where it's like, you're writing like speculative fiction, like speculate, you know, <laughs> you don't have to stay in the safety zone of Sherlock Holmes. But I also think that something that's really interesting about it is that most of the horror stories I've read are like, you start with Sherlock Holmes in the Sherlock Holmes world, and a supernatural element comes into Victorian London. And what's really interesting about A Study in Emerald is that it takes place in a fully alternate history where the supernatural element was introduced hundreds of years ago. And I don't see a lot of that in Sherlock Holmes speculative fiction. Well, and, and I think it speaks to like the confidence of Neil Gaiman as a writer to like be like, I can get all this world building into a, you know, what is a the PDF version of the story is nine pages. It is fairly short. It's certainly shorter than Study in Scarlet, even though it covers a lot of the same ground. I was missing some Mormons. I should have it should have cut to the uh, Cthulhu Mormon cult for like half this. <laughs> that would have been awesome. 
I also think this is fascinating because Neil Gaiman obviously is a very established author in his own right, but I have loved for years his episodes of Doctor Who, where he also picks up an existing mythology and and runs with it in mm. ways that I think are really fun. Sarah, can you synopsize Study in Emerald for us? And again, real quick, yes. spoiler territory. <laughs> if you want to read yes. this, read this first, pause this, read it, and then come back. This is your last warning. <laughs> so the basic synopsis is that our dear narrator comes back from Afghanistan with a war wound and is in a dire straits. And he ends up moving in with a consulting detective and they get called in to investigate the murder of a member of a the royal family. And as it sort of gets revealed, the royal family in this world is Cthulhu-type monsters, Lovecraftian cosmic horror monsters. And I think it's implied that the person killed is like part human, part monster, but they have green blood. So instead of a study in Scarlet, where murder is a Scarlet thread, the murder is an emerald thread in this. So they are investigating the murder of a... Lovecraftian monster and it's a very interesting framing because of course you're like isn't it good to kill those guys <laughs> not in this world no we're on the side of the royal family and of the Cthulhu monsters and they even see the queen herself who is a big terrifying creature who has psychic powers and basically tells our narrator like you are going to be the very valuable companion of this great detective and you're going to help us a lot in the future and during their investigation they uncover the word rach which is from a study in scarlet where it was written to mean revenge in german eventually the investigation leads them to a small theater that had been in the same countries that this royal had been in and the detective has figured out, oh, you know what? I think that this theater company has been following this guy. I think that, you know, we know this guy saw the show in two cities. We think that there's a connection between this show and the murder victim. They go, they are introduced to a Sherry Vernette, the lead actor, and they are impressed by the writing of the show, which was written by a doctor who does not want his name associated with this performance. And it gradually comes out that actually the actor and writer are Sherlock Holmes and Dr. Watson and they killed this Cthulhu character, this this Cthulhu royal family murder victim. And the whole time we have been following Colonel Sebastian Moran, Moriarty's first lieutenant, and Moriarty, who in this world, they are the detectives who work for the official police and consult various clients on you know, how to handle their problems in this horrific post-Lovecraftian world. And there's also lots of little ads in the story that are interspersed, like a newspaper ads that are from, like, other gothic monsters. There's, you know, Frankenstein and Vlad the Impaler and Spring Jack, where the implication is, you know, 
you know that that tweet that's like um there's something so sinister about the joker or somebody who thinks crime is funny it made me kind of think of that where it's like imagine a world where being an evil gothic villain was good actually <laughs> and that makes it sound like i'm making fun of this but like that is the vibe of it. it's like what if being like that was actually considered positive in society and therefore you could be more legitimate and then if you didn't want society to be overrun by monsters that eat people and drive them to madness then you would be considered a criminal and you would be considered a bad person because of the society you live in so it's it a little twilight zoney for that you know a little eye of the beholder but also just a fun little twist on the Sherlock Holmes narrative of like oh of course we were assuming we're we're right we're assuming Holmes and Watson are in the right but actually we're not with Holmes and Watson at all that's yeah it's, it's interesting that the the writing choice is that in the evil world Moriarty and Moran are the Sherlock and Watson archetypes it's like in the bad world the bad people are are good and the yeah. good people you know like it, it feels a little a little black and white but it, also it's not, yeah. not a lot of room for complicated feelings so you you actually brought this to us because uh, we were initially going to do a different minisode and then just because it's the writer's strike we can't and i had heard of this story but i didn't know anything about it and i looked it up and then like immediately was spoiled like the whatever the uh, wikipedia entry i read was like this is where this is where the story goes this is the, the twist at the end and i was like oh that's interesting we should talk about that but i didn't tell you what the twist was no you did not can you talk about your experience reading the story? <laughs> oh, God. Okay. So, I mean, I'll just come out and say it. I didn't fully comprehend the twist. I don't know if it was my reading comprehension was bad or... I don't know, but I did not get the twist. Like, it flew right over my head. <laughs> Even though it's clear in black and white, like, in <laughs> in the text, like, it says that. Well, I think part of it is that in our exploration of the home scanner, we haven't met... Sebastian Moran because he shows up in The Adventure of the Empty House. Right. Which we're reading in a couple episodes, but haven't yet. Yeah. So, like, knowing that Moriarty even has a right-hand man wasn't on your radar. No, no. And, yeah, like like I said, like, they even said, like, this is Sherlock and Watson, and my brain went, what? <laughs> like, <laughs> There's I just, two of them. <laughs> There's two of them? Like, yeah. I, I, I don't know. It just never clicked in my brain and maybe because I was so focused on the other aspects like the Cthulhu aspects and you know I'm a theater person so I was like oh this is cool we're in the theater (laughs) it just never clicked with me and I don't want to say it was unsatisfying in that way because it didn't click with me now like understanding and being like oh that's really cool I wish I got it Mm -hmm. I'm not like unsatisfied with the story but I'm like kind of kicking myself in the ass being like why didn't i get this when it's literally right there mm. well there's a larger conversation there about whether stories that would like rely on twists can be satisfying absent the twist because like the crime i mean this is a classic example of like the crime only sort of gets solved like moriarty gets a letter at the end where Sh- sherry vernay as it were explains that it, it was he that killed the member of the royal family and that he's intends to get away with it. And Moriarty sort of lets him. Right. I think my other thing, thing too, was maybe I was also just trying to compare it too much to Study in Scarlet. Mm-hmm. Where in Study in Scarlet, like, 
they do catch the bag. <laughs> but it's interesting because it's kind of like the murder of Study and Scarlet with the ending of Scandal in Bohemia. And kind of devil's footy. He kind of just lets him get away in a way. Yeah. Well, yeah, more I, scandal in Bohemia. Yeah, because Irene just gets away and then right. it's like, haha. And writes a letter and be like, gotcha, bitch. <laughs> what did you think about the story returning to it, Sarah? Uh, yeah, so I hadn't revisited this for a long time. I think, yeah, maybe like over a decade. And I was impressed by how many like actual interesting details are in there because it's, you know, it kind of got like flattened in my brain to like, it's a study in Scarlet, but it's actually Moran and Moriarty. And there's a lot of like the fact that Watson is the one who kills this monster is very cool to me. I love that for him that like I had kind of remembered that Holmes did it but like Holmes just brings him there and then is like Watson if you do the honor <laughs> you do all the heavy lifting I'd really appreciate it and the fact that I forgot that they visit the the queen Victoria who is again a Lovecraftian horror and an interesting aspect of this in terms of like if if there were to be more stories in this world you know if, if this was to get adapted to a longer thing an interesting aspect of it is like, yes, you know, in the bad world, bad people are good, actually. Imagine that. But, you know, this Lovecraft in horror psychically communicates with Moriarty and she like reads Moran's future and she touches his shoulder and heals the wound that he got from a different Lovecraft in horror. And so there's this kind of sense of like, if there were to be more stories, like, would these two even have the option of like, fighting back against Lovecraft and Horrors if they were good, because they're like, they are being watched. They are being really supervised by the powers that be. And I think that that's like an, a really fascinating element that something that's so cool about, you know, that I really love about Sherlock Holmes and I think makes him continue to be accessible, even though like, you know, he has this reputation as being like the stuffy, Victorian man the like symbol of like this certain upper crap stuffy you know old guard thing and like it's not that that isn't part of it but I something that I think makes him still relatable is that he operates on his own rules and he has a lot of freedoms and he isn't actually bound by the laws of the time and he kind of goes outside of those rules and that's not something that Moriarty really has an option to do in this story. And that he's a lot more confined, uh, which I thought was an interesting touch. Ian, it definitely is not on you that you didn't see this twist because it is not, it's it's not clarified much if you don't already know the puzzle pieces. It's, mm-hmm. it's very reliant on the fact that you know that Rene is... Sherlock Holmes' grandmother's last name. Why would you? Why would oh, that be? I did. I missed that. No, it's it's mentioned once in Greek Interpreter, and then comes up again in Norwood Builder, where Sherlock Holmes is a cousin whose last name is Werner, and thus like probably is from that same family line. Why would you? Why would a casual reader know that? Why would a casual reader? know so much about Sebastian Moran, a character who's in one story. And 
when I read this, I had recently been reading the canon and especially reading kind of the middle part of the canon where this stuff was most most prominent. But like revisiting, I'm like, man, yeah, this this is written for Sherlock Holmes fans. <laughs> and it that makes sense. It was originally published in Shadows of a Baker Street. So it definitely it is inside baseball. I like I like the story <laughs> a lot. It's got a lot of interesting elements. And that is not on you. This is so inside baseball. They yeah, at the very end they say Dr. Watson. And even then it's a fucking inside baseball joke because they say John or possibly James Watson because there's debate about what his first name is. Neil Gaiman also has a really great Sherlock Holmes pastiche called Death and Honey, which has, I guess, a sci-fi supernatural element to it, but is definitely less like, it's a much smaller quieter story than this the death and honeys deal with a like retired shock i'm just thinking because of i know he retires to 10 bees that's fun yeah he starts cultivating bees because he thinks that honey or like pollen has something to do with you know curing death immortality kind of thing Uh, not curing death makes it sound like he's bringing people back from the dead which he doesn't do but like longevity he thinks that plants have a key to longevity so he it's about him traveling around trying to find um bees that will do what he wants uh and so it's just like you know quite story about beekeeping that has an interesting you know uh supernatural sci-fi element to it without being you know we are dealing with actual space aliens (laughs) stuff so i recommend that it's definitely a very different vibe but yeah. I, I bring it up to be like neil gaiman writes these very very niche sherlock holmes stories where if <laughs> you had just read hound of the basketballs and then read death and honey you'd be like what the fuck is happening i love that I, i'm glad I, I i feel i feel a lot better now good knowing that good. you should feel validated in this this is <laughs> very niche <laughs> i, I want to jump back to something you said earlier about moriarty having to work within the system in a way that sherlock doesn't in the regular canon do we think that that's why he lets Sherlock go at the end? Like, do we get a sense that there's some hint of him being rebellious to the monarchy? Because at the end, he's he says, the police are going to search these places. If I were Sherry Brene, I would go to this place in Lilo and then do this. But then he doesn't try to tell anybody that, you know? So, so in a sense, he lets him go. What do we make of that? Yeah. I hadn't read that as him letting Holmes go and you're right that that is actually what happens you know he could very doggedly be like I gotta I gotta tell them what I suspect and I got I I'm I'll go to every in myself if I have to to get this motherfucker like mm. there is an action movie guy who does that and that's just not Moriarty like Moriarty is the subtle schemer mm-hmm. and in in the final problem Moriarty does actually he is, you know, I will knock on every door and follow this guy across the country to get my revenge on Sherlock Holmes. That's literally what he does. He follows Sherlock Holmes to Switzerland and, like, waits for him to go on a hike and gets got. But, spoiler for the final problem, who cares? (laughs) (laughs) But in the final problem, that's after Sherlock Holmes has taken everything from him. Mm -hmm. And before that, Moriarty is like, oh, you ruined a few of my schemes. And I thought that was interesting. And then when he ruins enough schemes, he goes to Sherlock Holmes himself and is like, 
please stop or I'm going to kill you and I don't want to kill you because you seem cool. Like you're a worthy opponent. That is kind of more like that is it wasn't necessarily him letting Sherlock Holmes go so much as him letting Sherlock Holmes go for now because there is an understanding that they are going to cross paths again. But also I am kind of bringing in what Moran says about like, I think that they are inevitably going to kill each other, which is technically not something anything Moriarty says or does. So whom's am I to assume Moriarty's motivation? Maybe he did send a bunch of people there. You know, I, I don't know. <laughs> I just didn't tell Brent. Yeah, I kind of got it as I could tell the police like what's happening or where yeah. he's going, but I feel like they wouldn't listen. That's kind of the tone that I got. Yeah. At the end where it's like, I could try and be like, hey, he's going here. Go yeah. stop him. But they're not going to listen to me. Well, because there is an element that comes from studying Scarlet of the police, like not really having a lot of respect for the detective, which I think you see less in later books. Like by the time you get to Hound of the Baskervilles, the strat is like the sun rises and sets because Sherlock Holmes says it does. <laughs> so that that's interesting. Because Sterling Scarlet is, of course, the beginning of the character and the beginning of his relationship with the police in terms mm-hmm. of what uh, Doyle writes. So the relationship is very different. Uh, how do we feel about how the, f- I guess, for us, the three characters, Moriarty, Watson, and Sherlock, because we haven't met Moran yet, match up to their Doylean counterparts? You know, like, like I think that there's interesting references to to the, the way that they're written in the story. Like, mm-hmm. Sherlock Holmes is a lover of disguises, in the Doyle verse and in this one he is an actor Watson of course writes the Sherlock Holmes stories he's a writer and then he's a writer but he writes fiction you know there's there's an interesting like sideways version and then as you were just discussing like Moriarty is like sort of a um, much more classically an armchair detective than Sherlock Holmes is like he, he like stays in his lair and sends out people to do his bidding in the Doyle verse mm-hmm which is what I've decided to call it. But, but in this one, he gets pretty actively involved. I like that. The ACDCU. Something that I'm kind of thinking about, especially earlier talking about how if you look for some version of the Sherlock Holmes story, you're going to find it. And like being this story, like from the Moriarty point of view, I kind of am curious if we have like outside of this, like a Moriarty Wicked-esque novelization or story he was misunderstood where, yeah, yeah he had a childhood <laughs> yeah i haven't listened to this myself because i haven't had an audible account for years but they actually audible did an audio drama called moriarty that was like moriarty was the misunderstood one and holmes keeps fucking up his life <laughs> i haven't actually listened to it so i don't know if it's good or bad but it that like just came out actually i saw it in a commercial recently of like advertising audible i love that somebody tells steven schwartz or star kid <laughs> they can be on it right now how do you feel about how the characters are depicted uh, yeah i like it i mentioned before i really love that watson is the actual killer in this story i think that like i said is lots of adaptations so to stay a little too close to sherlock holmes and some to sometimes the detriment of watson and so i was glad to see that watson actually got something to do here besides just sort of like oh, Watson, he's a writer and he does whatever I ask him to do. And instead, this is like, we are criminals together in this radical organization and we both have very important roles. (laughs) I appreciated that. I, of course, love that Holmes and Watson run away together at the end. Love that for them. 
Thank you, Neil Gaiman. But I think that the thing that the story does that I find really interesting and really helpful for understanding the characters is that it, by making us think Moran is Watson and Moriarty is Holmes, it kind of changes how we think about Watson and Holmes, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Like seeing them in like this, you know, t- twisted funhouse mirror, it makes us think like, oh, would Watson do that under those circumstances? You know, would Holmes work for like, you know, this Lovecraftian regime and eventually find out like, no, they wouldn't. But there is something about like, you know, watching these characters that we love and have affection for be be part of this evil organization and this evil world and do these certain things and, you know, kind of live in that space for a while of like, oh, wow, they're doing this. And, you know, do we think that that's okay? And, you know, are we rooting for them? Do we want them to solve this case? Do we, or do we worry about, you know, Watson's nightmares when we think that it's Watson having the nightmares and does knowing it's Moran change how we feel about it and change our sympathies? And I also think that something that's in the original text is that Moran is very, very much the parallel to Watson. You know, Moriarty is, you know, Sherlock Holmes's Wario or whatever, this evil, <laughs> evil twin. <laughs> and Moran is Watson's evil twin. And I think that that's, it's not expressly stated in the canon, especially not to the extent that like Moriarty really is presented. Moriarty is, you know, a plot device. Dory wanted to kill off Holmes. So we brought in Moriarty and he was like, Oh, well, the thing about Moriarty is he's an equal foe, so you can all feel fine about him besting Sherlock Holmes because it's not like Sherlock Holmes got, you know, killed by some random mugger. Like, it's a guy worthy of him, so we can all be fine about it. They're equals and they're exactly matched. Great. So it's Moriarty, like, exists as a parallel to Holmes because that was the easiest thing for Doyle to do that where people get the least mad at him and it didn't work people were very mad at him but then of course they were all obsessed with Moriarty so the the Moriarty Holmes parallels are like really obvious the Moran Watson ones are only obvious if you're kind of going and looking for it but Moran in the stories is a published author this is from Empty House Moran comma Sebastian comma Colonel formerly of the army he served in afghanistan india persia so author of heavy game of the western himalayas 1881 and three months in the jungle 1884 and notably 1881 is also when watson started writing his first published work which is a study in scarlet and moran has you know, a mustache and he has gambling debts and he's a former soldier and he's a crack shot and he's first lieutenant to Moriarty and he's the last member of Moriarty's gang who is hunting Sherlock Holmes, which is not a parallel to Watson in an explicit sense because Watson is never in that position. But I think it's pretty clear that if somebody killed Holmes, Watson would be the person who hunted them across the earth, right? Like that's... <laughs> so reading this a study in Emerald has really, really emphasized to me and sort of put in my brain permanently like, 
Watson and Morano parallels, which is something that, you know, changes my view of Watson. You know, it's like, oh, what if Holmes was bad, would Watson also be bad? You know, if Holmes wanted to do these bad, criminal, awful things, would Watson continue to be a supposed lieutenant? Like, are Watson and Moran that different? And to what extent are they different? I will say, I do like the <laughs> the parallels and the comparison to uh, Mario and Wario and Luigi yeah. and Luigi. <laughs> Where's that crossover? I know. I'll look it up. I'll look it up. It, it, by the rule of Sherlock, it must exist. It must exist. Yeah, if, I, if you can't find Mario wearing a fucking Deerstalker hat, I just don't believe it. I just Nintendo, don't it. you're missing out. <laughs> yeah. That's what the Mario sequel should be. <gasps> so going into this, I realized, I was like, oh, I've never read Lovecraft. <laughs> Have either <laughs> of you read Lovecraft? No. I read the one where he goes to that weird town where there's all the fish people. And I got pretty sure. frustrated with it because i'm like this is just a travelogue of new england the <laughs> thing about lovecraft is he's just sort of like you know what new england's like and i'm like yeah i'm from there and then he's like and also sea creatures and i'm like sure yeah we we get it we get none of the streets lead anywhere the ocean is big and scary everyone's <laughs> rude everyone's a racist i know i'm from new england this isn't new information <laughs> As a fellow New Englander, that's good to know. Maybe I don't need to read them. Get so, it. Yeah, you get it. <laughs> I, I certainly wonder if there's like things I'm missing out on, if there's like references he's making to the Lovecraft canon, because there are such subtle references to the Holmes canon. Hmm. I wonder if a like a Lovecraft scholar would be like, this is actually very interesting. Or maybe it's maybe it's very surface level. I don't know. Maybe. I truly have no idea. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I do like the the play we see of like how the old ones officially like what when they arrived i thought that that was a a cool way of sort of getting in that information because probably this was also my like first lovecraftian story i read and yeah i've read some other ones since then i i played the original the awakened game which is the sherlock holmes goes up against a cthulhu cult video game from frogware and they did a re-release of that recently that i haven't played because I just had my little Steam account on my desktop, but <laughs> actually there are quite a few Holmes versus Cthulhu things out there already. We could just do a round of general thoughts real quick. I I liked this a lot. I think that Study in Scarlet, when we read it, we were like, this feels a little too long. I think longer than it needs <laughs> it to is. be. I feel like Arthur Conan Doyle, you can feel him inventing the detective novel in real time. Or, or after Edgar Allan Poe. It was it was only too long because he added the Mormons. That's true. That's true. And it was sort of gratifying to read this version and be like, yeah, see, you can do this story much shorter. It doesn't have to be 100 pages. It can be nine pages. And I like Neil Gaiman a lot. So it was fun to have his writing style throughout. Mm-hmm. I, I was like, oh, I should read Neil Gaiman again. It's been a while and I yeah. enjoy his writing style. That having been said, I was like, maybe going in knowing the twist, I was sort of like, oh, all right. There it is. That's the end. So I guess I'm in the middle about it. Yeah. I, I mean, obviously we know how my my reading of it turned out by the end. Yeah, I'm kind of in the middle about it. I, I think it's interesting and detailed in a way that like, I wish the original study in Scarlet was. But overall, like, I I really don't have like, positive or negative feeling about it. I'm like, yeah. This this was good. This existed. I had a little cute time reading it, even though I didn't get the ending. It's cool to see a very different take on the world that these characters exist in. 
I enjoy that a lot. I enjoy anything that takes place in the theater. So I, I enjoyed it for that. I think it's going to be a while before we see a really different England for Holmes and Watson yeah. after this. So yeah. yeah, cool to see a world with magic in it. Dark magic, I guess. Yeah, I, I'm sure it won't be the first time yeah. that we see this. Yeah. Yeah, I have a really positive association to the story, as I mentioned. It's the first pastiche I read, so it really like blew my mind and set a really high bar. And I, I also like, I've been getting into reading a lot of pastiche and a lot of them don't do anything interesting. Uh-huh. <laughs> There's lots of good stuff out there. I don't want to like put anyone off, but like this really is doing stuff in a way that's not always, always part of the genre. It, it takes big swings and I think that it lands the big swings, even if, as mentioned, it's very much for Sherlock Holmes fans who are reading lots of pastiche. But that makes sense because it was originally published in a volume of Sherlock Holmes pastiches. So it it met the audience where they were. You know, I think it's really cool. I think that Moran and Moriarty in the story, more Moran because we don't know that much about Moriarty, are really interesting. I like that moment where it's a little on the nose, but where Moriarty is like, I I don't know what it is, but I feel like we've, you know, we've been together in, you know, many universes and I thought that I'm always a sucker for that kind of dynamic, especially in fiction that gets adapted a lot. You know, the that sense of like Superman and Lois Lane are always going to find each other. You know, that that thing of like, you know, Holmes and Watson are always going to find each other. But also the counterpoint is that Moriarty and Moran are always going to find each other. And I think they're interesting characters. I have a question for the two of you, for studying Scarlet, what was it like getting to that jump scare where Brigham Young shows up and then Arthur Conan Doyle describes his long eyelashes and you're like, what's happening here? <laughs> well, first I said gay. <laughs> right. And yeah. Well, what's wild is that this beginning of that section, it's like the whole murder happens and they like seize the murder and then they're like suddenly a plane in Utah and you're like, and you don't meet, you don't meet any characters you've heard of for like a couple pages. So it's like, I don't know what's happening. Are you sure this is the same book? And also like, especially going in looking for a queer reading, which is something that I think we're both interested in. It was suddenly like it became so gender roles. It's like this this poor woman who's being yeah. pushed around by oh, cattle yeah. and this man who has to step in and save her and he's the manliest man alive and you know and then obviously the mormon being there you're like <laughs> How, what does this have to do with mormons this was it was not on my bingo card my yeah. like bingo card mormons well i got reminded recently that there are also home stories that deal with the klu klux klan and the, like the mob as well okay <laughs> yeah so uh, those are interesting because like a victorian audience maybe would have been less familiar with those groups the mormons are still mad at arthur conan doyle for the way he depicted them it seems like (laughs) i mean like yeah there are definitely offshoots of mormonism that like don't do great things but the way that doyle depicts them like it would be unfair to any group where it's like they sneak into your house and like write in blood on the walls they're like leaving numbers across the property in such a fucking comic book villain way. Yeah. Uh, I just, I love telling people that Brigham Young is in the Sherlock Holmes rogues gallery. And I think like, adaptation's always like, Moriarty's the bad guy. Moriarty's the bad guy. Moriarty's the bad guy. Cowards. Cowards. Bring in Brigham Young. Bring in <laughs> human being, historical figure Brigham Young. Mm-hmm. Bring in the moments. 
mm-hmm. bring in the Ku Klux Klan. It's Sherlock Holmes sends a letter to the Ku Klux Klan being like, I'm going to personally fight you. And the fact that adaptations don't run with that, so cowardly. It's oh yeah, it's always fucking Cthulhu. It's never Brigham Young. Bullshit. That is bullshit. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Can you can you remind us where people can find you? I think you said a little bit of it at the beginning. Now that you know who I am, you can find me at Sarah Golub, S-A-R-A-G-H-A-L-E-B, no spaces on Twitter, on Blue Sky. That's also my website. That's that's where I am. I don't know where else you would find me. But oh, if you like horror short stories, I have a podcast called Mythic Hunters, which is a comedy horror. And there are six episodes that are 10 to 15 minutes long. They're much more the tone of the little ads in the story. You know, if, you, if you're like, I like the Koopy Loo stuff, but I wish it was just bits about vampires or, you know, uh, magic potions. Mythic Hunters doesn't have vampires and magic potions. We have uh, werewolves. We have uh, La Llorona, Chupacabra. We got some stuff. We got some fun stuff. Black-eyed kids, haunted dolls. I think those are all the episodes. Check us out. Mythic Hunters on wherever you get your podcast. <laughs> Especially in the spooky season. So next week, we're going to be looking at Murder by Decree for our Halloween special, where Sherlock Holmes, as promised, goes up against Jack the Ripper. Is that your Jack the Ripper noise? Yeah. (laughs) Famous for saying that. We've been your Baker Street regulars. And we'll see you next week.